Words have direction. Did you know that? Words have direction. Proverbs 18.21 says this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And what the proverb is saying is that words can lead in the direction of life or words can lead in the direction of death. In other words, our words aren't neutral. They, they have power to them. They, they do things. So on one hand, our words can lead to hope. They can lead to encouragement. They can lead to forgiveness and reconciliation and love. And all of these things lead to life. You see the direction of those kinds of words and where they lead. And on the other hand, words can lead to condemnation, anger, vengeance, malice, hatred. And, and, and all of these kinds of words are words that lead to death. You see the, the directional nature of our words. They go somewhere. They take us somewhere. And maybe it's, you know, still too early. The coffee hasn't kicked in and this philosophical metaphor is just, it's too much for you right now. Let me, let me bring it down a little bit. Consider how our words are like toothpaste. All right, hopefully we've all interacted with toothpaste this morning. You notice how once you squeeze the toothpaste out, you can't put it back in the tube. Right? Once it's out, it, it's out there. And our words are like toothpaste. Once the words leave your mouth, you can't put them back in anymore. It's out there. And so either you have a useful, measured sliver of toothpaste to brush your teeth, or you have a mess to clean up. This morning, Jacob speaks words to his son. And these words to his sons are his final words. And we know that this is the last time he speaks to them because at the end of this chapter, after he's finished with everything he has to say to each one of his sons, he gives one final command that he be buried with his forefathers in the cave of Machpelah in the promised land. And then in verse 33, Moses tells us when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So these final words have weight. And his words, we'll find this morning, have direction. His words have consequences. And if you've been tracking with us through this Genesis series, first of all, thank you. We're almost done. This is the penultimate sermon. So next week is the last sermon in Genesis. But if you've been tracking, you know Jacob hasn't always been the most exemplary father or human being for that matter. He's shown favoritism. He's been outright negligent as a father. But like all of us, he's a work in progress. And I would tell you, in these final years of his life, he spends about 17 years in Egypt with his sons. In these final years of his life, he's leaning into faith. He's trusting in the Lord. And here, his final words lead in the direction of life. These are words of blessing. Genesis 49, 28 says, all these are the tribes of, 12 tribes of Israel. So he, he speaks to each one of his 12 sons. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them. And this is important. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to them. 
And as Jacob gives a final blessings to his son, he's not merely well-wishing them. He's not just saying, hey, I hope things go well for you. I hope, you know, uh, good fortune finds you. He's not well-wishing them. He's not speaking generic terms of, of blessing and prosperity. He's speaking directly to each one with words they need to hear. And because God's word transcends time, not only are they words that they need to hear, but they're words that we need to hear as well. So as I've thought about ways to kind of summarize these words, we'll hear three kinds of words today. The first is, we'll hear words of rebuke. Maybe you heard that already in the reading of God's word today. Some of the sons get rebuke. Now, I know rebuke's not a popular word. It's not a word that we invite often into our lives. It's not a word that we want to hear. And for some, that might even sound contradictory. Hey, I, I thought these were blessings. How could rebuke and blessings go together? But in order to get on the path of life, in order to stay on the path of life, we need correction. And when someone loves you enough to help correct you and to keep you on that path, that's actually a blessing. So we'll hear words of rebuke. And second, we'll hear words of restoration. Because all of us experience the devastation of brokenness. And we need to hear the healing words of restoration. And we'll hear some of those words today. And then finally, we'll hear words of redemption. We all make mistakes we all live in a sin-soaked world. We need to know that our failures will be forgiven and that the brokenness around us will be redeemed. So this morning, as we walk through these final words of Jacob, we will hear words of rebuke, words of restoration, and words of redemption. So let's look first together to see words of rebuke. Back in verse 1, chapter 49. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now we're picking up right where we left off from last week. Jacob has just adopted Joseph's sons as his own and he's given them a blessing. And the scene just keeps continuing. Now he, he calls the rest of his sons so that he can speak to them one final time. Now let me just state at the beginning. Jacob does speak to each one of his 12 sons, but of the 12 that he speaks to, what he says to Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Judah and Joseph is more developed. In other words, he's, he spends more time. The, the things he says is, is, is longer. More time is given to them, and therefore, that's really where we're going to spend the most of our time this morning. Before we get into the words themselves, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, and this may not be as apparent on the screen, but if you were looking in your Bible, these words are offset. And whenever you see that in your Bible, it's often to indicate poetry. The way this is written in Hebrew is showing you that these are poetic words. Now, I don't think that Jacob is like a beat poet where he just kind of riffs off rhymes like that. I think he has thought through these words. In the last 17 years, as he's been reunited with his family, he's been thinking about their life. I mean, Jacob lives to be 147 years old. And so he's just, he's just thinking about their lives and the future of their lives as they're going to go on to be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And his words are really precise. You'll notice they're not, they're not um, unthoughtful, flagrant, just kind of willy-nilly. He's really thought about all of these words. It's likely he's probably even rehearsed 
these words. And he's really settled in his mind what he wants to say. We've done that before, haven't we? When you have an important conversation coming up, you kind of mull it over. Hope we're doing that, right? We're not just flying off the handle. We're being thoughtful about our words. And second, I want us to, sh- to see here that these words, we're meant to see them as prophetic. Now, the events in Genesis occur before the official offices of prophets and priests and kings. But as we've worked our way through uh, Genesis, we see the prototypes for these offices throughout the book. And you'll notice that Jacob functions like a prophet in Genesis. You remember that vision he had of a stairway to heaven? That one day there would be this access to God again? And here he speaks with prophetic authority concerning the future of his sons. In fact, a lot of what he says, if you didn't know it was in Genesis, it, it looks like it's coming out of the book of Isaiah or, uh, or, or Jeremiah. Now, some of the things he says are given as judgment. Because you've done this, this is what's going to happen. And we'll find as the story of God unfolds, that's exactly what comes to pass. Some of it's given as a warning. Sometimes prophecy is given, hey, if you don't change, this is what will happen. And so it's, it, from our perspective, it's kind of up in the air what will happen. Think of like Jonah when um, he says, you know, repent or this is what's going to happen. Right? And, it, and, and God, obviously God knows what will happen. But the way it's coming out is like, look, you've got a decision to make. And so some of what jo- Jacob is going to say to his sons has a feel like that. And then some of what he says to Judah, for instance will become the foundational cornerstone prophecies concerning the future Messiah. And all the expectation that will grow as we wait and anticipate God's future Savior, some of the very things that we're looking for in the Messiah for Christ to fulfill will be said in this passage. Now with that said, let's look at what he says to his firstborn, Reuben. Verse 3, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. So far, so good. Reuben's probably thinking, man, maybe he forgot about that whole thing. This is starting off really awesome. And indeed, Reuben is Jacob's firstborn. And again, I I don't want to overstate it, but it's hard to overstate that for Jews living at this time, the privilege and responsibility of the firstborn was so incredibly important. In fact, the, the, the importance of it probably can't be overstated. And as the firstborn, he was automatically entitled to a double portion of the inheritance, meaning whatever was left to divide, the firstborn got double what the other children received. And he would become the leader of the family. He would hold a, a, a place of prominence and privilege in the family. But verse 4 goes on. Jacob says, Reuben, you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. See, verse 4 brings words of rebu- rebu- rebuke. He's described as unstable or reckless. And he uses a powerful metaphor. In other words, his, his character is described as unstable. His instability is compared to turbulent water. 
Think of a squall on the ocean with fierce winds, little visibility. There's turbulence and deathly kind of waves. And you'll see this kind of come up all the time in Hebrew imagery because the Hebrews were not seafaring people. They loved staying on land. They were fearful of the ocean. And he's saying, you're like a turbulent squall. And this word picture gives way to a direct confrontation from their past. See, back in Genesis 35, verse 22, we get one verse of commentary that Reuben had slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Now, this wasn't a momentary act of lust. It was much more than that. See, this was Reuben's way to exert dominance in the family. It was a way for him to take his privilege as the firstborn son right now. He wanted the power, he wanted the privilege, he wanted the responsibility. Now he wanted to take leadership of the family prematurely. He was tired of Jacob's leadership. And on one hand, he's right, because at that time, Jacob really wasn't leading his family well. So he grew tired of waiting. And when Jacob tells him, no, you will not be uh, preeminent anymore, As we look down the halls of history, we find this prophecy actually comes true. Did you know that no judge, no prophet, no king, no one important ever comes from the line of Reuben? They kind of just disappear into the background. And the rebuke here comes with consequential judgment. His tribe, his line has lost prominence and position. But there's also more words of rebuke to consider. Look at verse 5. Come Simeon and Levi, they're the next oldest. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." Now, if you remember back in Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi take vengeance in their own hands after their sister Dinah is defiled. Truly, something wrong happened to her. She was a victim of injustice. But instead of pursuing justice, they met injustice with genocide. In other words, their response was grossly disproportionate. Those who raped their sister, deserved judgment, but they went above and beyond what was appropriate. And here Jacob calls them to account for it. And they've become, their character become angry, violent men. Jacob says, these aren't the kind of men that you want to go to for advice. These aren't the kind of men that you want to be associated with. And like Reuben, their sins have consequences. He tells them, you're going to be scattered throughout Israel. The Levites as a tribe will not be given any land. They'll be scattered among the other tribes. And the Simeonites, though they're given land, you'll notice their land is encompassed by the tribe of Judah. And after the conquest, after they get their land, you'll find they just disappear into the background as well. Eventually, you don't even hear about the the tribe of Simeon. They're just kind of included in the tribe of Judah. So what do we do with this? Well, I think there's a lesson to be learned for us. See, I don't know about you, but when I first read about what Reuben did, 
my first reaction was one of disgust. You just kind of like it, it, that verse just comes up and you're like, whoa, Reuben, what are you, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? And then when you get to Simeon and Levi, you think, how, how could you murder an entire village? Men, women, and children, people who were innocent of the crime. And from our perspective, when we look at Reuben and we look at Simeon and Levi, we think, how could you be so stupid? How could you do that? Or why would you do that? But when we see sins like this, our response shouldn't be, look at how stupid these people are. But rather, with humility, we should ask, how can I guard my heart so that I don't walk down that same path of foolishness? How, how can I guard my heart so I don't believe the lies of sin that they were believing and start acting in the way that they did. Walking down the road that leads to this kind of foolishness and evil. Think of Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 and 20 through 27. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. See, Reuben wanted power. He wanted it now. And for Reuben, his priorities got misaligned. And that kind of misalignment happens at the level of the heart. That's why the, the writer of Proverbs says to keep your heart with all vigilance. Don't let your priorities get misaligned because when they do, you start walking in accordance with those priorities. And you start down a path that leads us to do things we never thought we could do. Simeon and Levi thought justice was to be found in taking matters into their own hands. They, they didn't trust that the Lord would bring every injustice under the gavel of his just judgment. That's why the Proverbs tells us to guard our hearts. And that is where the battle of sin is fought and won. See, sin lies to us. Sin makes us irrational. So when you think, how could someone do that? They're, it's, it's completely irrational. The answer is, of course, because that's what sin makes us do. Have you ever been on the other side of your sin and thought, what was I thinking? And the answer is, you weren't thinking. That's the problem. Is sin makes you irrational, makes you do things you would never do otherwise. Friends, let me just be really clear. Sin makes us stupid. That's what it does. It makes us do stupid, foolish things. I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm saying sin makes you do stupid things. That when you're in your own rational mind, when you're not in front of that temptation, you would never do it. But in the moment, you give in to the lie and the temptation. And while there is forgiveness for sin, there are consequences. And sometimes those consequences don't just magically go away. For Reuben, the consequence was that he lost his place as the firstborn son. 
For Simeon and Levi, it meant losing the security of land. And in the end, with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, Jacob says what needs to be said. He's willing to call their sin to account. He's willing to say hard things to them. In his final words, he's calling Simeon and Reuben and Levi to repentance. See, that's how we should respond to words of rebuke. I don't know about you, but, but when I'm on the, the receiving end of rebuke, when my sin is being called to account, my first response is defensiveness. My first response is to give excuses. It's to, listen, let me explain to you what was really going on. But instead of excuses, instead of justification, when words of rebuke are true, we should humble ourselves and repent. We should repent. We should be willing to acknowledge our wrong so that we can move forward, be corrected on to the path of life. That's why these words are words that lead to life. He's, he's telling his sons, if you continue in this way, it leads to death. Jacob calls his oldest sons to repentance through words of rebuke. Now let's see how Jacob offers words of restoration to Joseph. We're going to skip ahead to Joseph, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. This is a wonderful summary of Joseph's life. If you think about all that he's been through, beaten and betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of scandal, condemned to prison, left for dead, and yet somehow his bow remained unmoved. His, he, he continued to remain fruitful like a tree planted by streams of living water. I can't help but think that maybe when the psalmist was writing Psalm 1, he had a picture of Joseph in his mind. Thinking of all that Joseph went through, and yet he's this thriving, fruitful bough with, 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 with just long branches reaching over the wall. Speaking of one who thrives and flourishes because he's nourished by God's word. Listen to Psalm 1, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You remember we read verse 1 and 2 earlier? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his word, he meditates day and night. And then he gives this imagery of man. The one who does that, it's like a tree planted by a stream of water. Doesn't matter. You, you can even go through seasons of, of uh, without rain because you've got access to the water and the roots go down deep. And so they're fruitful and thriving. Doesn't matter what's coming around them. That's the picture here. And though Joseph doesn't have a, a Bible like you and I have access to the scriptures, what did Joseph have? He had the promises of God and the God of those promises. All throughout Joseph's life, there's this refrain in his life, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. Every time he goes down into the pit, Moses tells us, don't forget, the Lord was with him. In the depths of the pit, in the darkness of the dungeon, the Lord never for forgot nor forsake Joseph. And he flourished and he thrived despite all of his afflictions. And Jacob makes it clear in this blessing, in these words of restoration, that it was the Lord who sustained him. 
Jacob says, how, how did his bow remain unmoved and his arms agile? He says, verse 24, by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your fathers who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you. Jacob is telling Joseph, the God has, who has been strong for me has been strong for you. The God who was with me, he has been with you as well. And then Jacob goes on and he lists out the different ways that Jacob will continue to be blessed. Jacob, you'll be blessed with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mightier than the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. You see Jacob hearkening back to that dream. When he heard that dream, he didn't quite understand it, but we're, we're told that he treasured it. And now he realizes that Joseph was set apart from his brothers from the beginning. He was set apart for the Lord's purposes. He was sent by God to go ahead of them and go ahead of this famine so that God's redemptive purposes would prevail. And the Lord blesses Joseph. And Jacob begins to use poetic language to speak of blessings from above in the heavens and, and to the deeps and blessings of fertility and fruitfulness. And just imagine Joseph receiving these words. They're words of restoration. All that he's been through. Now hearing Jacob pronounce blessings over him. For Joseph to see his life restored in light of all that he's been through had to be incredibly healing. You know that there were times in his life when he wondered if he would ever see his father again. You know there were times in his life when he wondered if he had been forgotten in prison or in the pit. There were times when he wondered, am I ever even going to have children? There were times when he wondered if he would ever be vindicated. There were times in his life when he wondered, is the Lord really with me? And now Jacob points to his life as a model of the life of blessing. And at the end of his life, Jacob is pointing Joseph to the promise. Now don't miss the significance of this. Don't forget who Joseph is. Joseph is the right hand of Pharaoh. I mean, at this time, Egypt is one of the most powerful empires on the face of the planet. And he is number two to the most powerful man in the world. That makes him one of the most powerful men in the entire world. His reputation, his renown has few parallels. His own personal power has few rivals. And do you notice in all that Jacob says to him and about him, he doesn't mention any of his power, his place, his prominence in Egypt. None of that comes up. He connects Joseph to his forefathers. He says, the blessings of your forefathers and on me are on you. May those be on your head. Not the blessings of Pharaoh, not the, 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 the power and might that you have in Egypt. Jacob is saying, don't look to your current circumstances as your blessing, but look to the promises of God. He connects Joseph to his forefathers, connecting him to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He doesn't want Joseph to look to Egypt for his future or his inheritance, but to the Lord and his promises. He points Jacob heavenward to, inherit, to an inheritance that's greater than anything that Egypt could ever provide. 
And for Joseph, Jacob has words of restoration. So what can we take away from that? See, Joseph was sustained through affliction as he clung to the promises of God. And if we are going to be these kind of fruitful trees, we too must meditate on the scriptures. And we must become a promise-saturated people. The promises of God have to get deep down into your soul. We must be a promise-saturated people. See, when the promises of God sustain you, meaning you're, they are your source of life. They, they are the stream that is feeding you. You'll be able to look at the lies of the world. You'll be able to look at the false promises it offers, and you'll be able to see them for what they are. On the other hand, if you are looking to the promises of the world, if you're looking to what this world can offer you, then anytime those promises are threatened, guess what? You're going to feel threatened. You're going to feel insecure because the very thing that you think is giving you life is now being threatened. So of course you would feel this tendency to want to lash out. Of course you're going to feel this great fear welling up inside of you because those things are being threatened. However, if your life is drawn from the promises of God, guess what? Nothing can attack them. They can't be taken away from you because they are anchored and fixed in God himself. That means nothing this world can throw at you can ever touch your inheritance. We see this clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let this be an upcoming, a teaser for the upcoming series as we're going to walk through 1 Peter together. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now if that weren't enough, there's more. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, listen to me. If your hope is united to Christ, then not even death itself can overcome your future resurrection. And what's more, you have an inheritance that's not here on earth. It's not kept here where where moth and rust can decay. No, your inheritance, what did Peter tell us? Is kept in heaven where it will never perish. It will never be defiled. It will never, ever fade. It is untouchable. It's untouchable. And it's being reserved and kept to be given to you. So if your hope is anchored in Christ, then everything in this life that's touched by sin, that will be destroyed by death, guess what? It will be restored. That's your inheritance that you have coming. When you think about the afflictions in your life, when you think about the pain, let these words of restoration, this future inheritance, like Joseph is, Jacob's pointing Joseph, like, look, look to your blessings in heaven. Look to the blessings of heaven 
church. Jacob speaks words of rebuke. He also speaks words of restoration. Now let's see his final words of redemption. Now to put this sermon in context, I I took some liberty to rearrange some of the, the content because I wanted to save Judah for the end. But don't forget where his blessing shows up in the narrative. Judah comes directly after Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. So just think about Judah for a moment, right? Remember, for their apparent sins and lack of repentance, Jacob says really hard things to his older brothers. True things, things that they needed to hear. So imagine Judah, he's sitting there in line. You know, Reuben gets on blast, Simeon and Levi, they're taken out, and now he's next. And Judah's going, well, my sins are well known. Everyone knows about what I've done. Everyone knows it was my plan to sell Joseph into slavery. And then there's that whole Tamar situation. And so he knows, he, he could just feel he's about to go on blast. And he figures his time for recompense is due. And so you can almost see him cringe when Jacob says his name. Judah, verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down before you. Friends, this is completely unexpected. This is that moment in the story that nobody sees coming. We expect Jacob to call him out for his sins and render judgment. I mean, why else has Moses listed out all his sins in the earlier chapters, if not for him to be called into account now? But you notice, there's no mention of of, of selling Joseph into slavery. There's no mention of his heinous sin against Tamar. And it begs the question, why not? Why doesn't Jacob bring it up? And I think the answer is because Judah has repented. See, in Genesis 34, when it becomes apparent that he sinned against Tamar, when all of his sin comes to light, there's no explanations, there's no defensiveness. What does he say? He says, she was more righteous than I. And it says he did not know her again. See, there's evidence of repentance. And then in Genesis 44, we see Judah stepping up to save Benjamin. You remember that? He said, take my life instead. See, Judah is a changed man. And Moses is showing us all of this to show that Judah has changed. He's exhibiting self-giving Christ-like love. And Jacob says, therefore, Judah is to be praised. Now, if you remember, going back to the time when Judah was born, when Leah gave birth to him, that's exactly what Judah's name means. You remember Jacob loved Rachel, not Leah, right? And so Leah thought, because Rachel was barren, that when Leah started producing children, that maybe finally Jacob would love her. Maybe she would earn his attention and affection. So when Reuben was born, she said, maybe Jacob will see me, because Reuben's name means maybe he'll see me. And then when Simeon was born, she said, well, maybe Jacob will hear me. Maybe Jacob will finally hear me. And then when Levi was born, she said, maybe Jacob will be attached to me because Levi's name means to be attached. But what happened? Jacob continued to disregard her. And so finally, with son number four, with Judah, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Leah began to look to the Lord 
And Judah's name means praise to the Lord. And do you see it coming full circle now in his blessing? Judah, your brothers will praise you. See, with repentance now comes redemption. And not only is Judah to be redeemed, but his very line will become the line of redemption. And at this moment, Jacob's words start to point beyond Judah. It's like they're pointing to someone else. Because the ultimate reason why Judah's brothers will praise him is because from his line will come the Messiah, the long-awaited one who will deliver humanity from the reign and destruction of sin, and it will come through Judah's line. Jacob says that Judah's hand will be on his enemy's neck. You can just hear these echoes of Genesis 3.15, of this promised one who crushed the head of the serpent. And, and Jacob is saying, Judah, one day there will come one from your line whose hands will be on the neck of his enemies. And then he goes on in verse 9. He says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion and as a lioness. And who dares to rouse him? The picture here is of a young lion sleeping in his den, having just devoured its prey. And he's like, who would dare awaken that lion, right? You just let lions sleep, right? And this is where we get the first idea of this lion of Judah. And if you fast forward to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation chapter 5, it's this vision of the end. There's this scene where a mighty angel kind of steps up and says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? In other words, to let the, 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 the events, the culmination of human history begin. Who, who can usher in the kingdom of God? And everyone's kind of looking around like, not me, not me. And then one of the elders stands up and says, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Jacob goes on in verse 10. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob's uh, talking about this scepter. It's the symbol of authority of the king. And Jacob says the right to rule and reign will not depart from Judah. And not only that, notice, this king will have the obedience of the nations. Do you see that when it said, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples? Like Jacob is imagining this kingdom that goes just even beyond what they're going to establish. This kingdom that there's people, all these nations coming together. And again, if we look back at Revelation 5, which is this, this peeking into the halls of history, there's this song that's sung of the one who's worthy to open the scrolls. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Do you see what's happening? The promises of God given to this family are starting to expand. There's a crescendo happening. 
The, the, the promise to Abraham to be blessed, that, that, that he would be blessed to be a blessings to others. Jacob's now saying, there's going to come a king from your line. And he's going to be such a righteous king that people from every tribe and every nation are going to give their allegiance to him. The Lion of Judah is worthy precisely because he gave up his life and ransomed God's people. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And therefore, people from every tribe and language and people and nation will come to him. Jacob is imagining a kingdom without borders, full of the beautiful diversity that God has created. And then he goes on to give us another word picture of this kingdom. Verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I was like, I have no idea what that means. Okay. Like, what is this talking about? But here's the idea. When you would arrive somewhere with your animal, donkey, horse, camel, whatever, you would want to bind it to a hitching post so that it doesn't wander off, right? So the idea here is saying, listen, when this king comes, his kingdom is the kind where you'd be willing to hitch your donkey to the vine of the choicest grapes. In other words, these valuable vines that you, that you would cherish and protect, you'd never let the animals eat the fruit of this vine. He's saying, when, in, in this king's kingdom, Choice vines are everywhere. They're so prolific that you'll hit your donkey to that. Why? Because they're everywhere. Why wouldn't you uh, hit your donkey there? We've got, there, there's no shortage of choice vines. Now think about that. Would you go on a tour in Napa or maybe go to Bordeaux and hit your donkey to the choicest vines at Chateau Margaux? You would never do that. By the way, if you're not a wine snob, Chateau Margaux is like one of the premier wineries in the entire world, okay? Five wineries in the world get to be a premier crew in Bordeaux. That's one of them. You would never let your animals eat those vines. Those, those vines have been guarded and protected for hundreds of years. And what Jacob is saying, in this king's kingdom... We let our animals eat from those vines because there's no scarcity here. He goes on to say, in fact, the kind of wine produced in this king's kingdom is so plentiful, you could even use it to wash your clothes. Would you ever do, I mean, one, that's a bad idea. Don't wash your clothes and wine. But his point is this. He's saying, in the king's kingdom, wine will flow like water. That's the point. There's an abundance. There's no scarcity. The things that we think are so incredibly valuable are so abundant that we treat them like common everyday things. That's the point Jacob is making. Just makes me think of John chapter 2. When Jesus shows up on the scene, when he's ready to show that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the long-awaited one, what is his first miracle? Turning water into wine and not just a little bit of wine it's not like jesus says listen i'll buy one more round for everybody all right 
No, he produces so much wine that the party and the feast is able to continue into the night. That night in Cana, everyone got a taste of the kingdom of God. Everyone got a taste of the kingdom to come. See, what Jacob is doing, he's, he's, he's drawing all the attention on this lion of Judah, the one who will reign over the nations with justice, the one who will come to crush the head of the servant, the one who brings an end to scarcity and struggle, the one who's able and worthy to open the scrolls because he gave his life as a ransom for many. In his final words, Jacob is pointing his sons to the promise of redemption. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, many of those who are like in Genesis, those cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let's run the race with, uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now he tells them how you do that. How do you run the race with endurance? He says, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Sometimes we just overcomplicate it. And I love it when writers just, just simplify it for me. And they go, listen, at the end of the day, look to Jesus. Like we need to rehearse these words of redemption in our life over and over and over. Look to Jesus, why? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him. What was that joy? Dying on a cross, but he knew what it would accomplish. The salvation of our souls. And so for him, it was a matter of joy. Seven Mile, are you surrounding yourself with words of redemption? When was the last time you just let yourself just revel in what God has done to redeem you? The great links that God has done to send a savior. Are you regularly encouraging your brothers and sisters to look to Jesus? It's one of our most sacred responsibilities to just say, friend, look to Jesus. Friends, we need every one of these words as we go throughout the everyday stuff of life. There are going to be days when you just need to receive words of rebuke. Where someone in love just tells you, this is wrong. Let those words of rebuke lead you to repentance and life. Friends, we need words of restoration. When we're broken, we need these words of healing. And finally, we all need to regularly hear words of redemption that point us to Jesus. Let's pray.